can turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. So we're going to start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, one quick announcement. In case you missed it last week, in case you're not on our email list or uh, you didn't hear the announcement at the 11 o'clock service, we voted overwhelmingly to purchase the missionary house for our missionaries, which is right there. I can actually literally, I look out my office window and I can see that house, which is just amazing that God opened the opportunity to purchase that house right there. So uh, we did vote to, to purchase that. If, if that's really something that's on your heart, you want to give a little extra toward that, there are instructions in the bulletin how to give it. You need to make sure you write missionary house on your check or whatever so it goes to that uh, very purpose. Okay? That's not my first slide. There we go. Okay, uh, that's not Jonah. That, that's Disney's Geppetto, if you, if you remember seeing it. But when I grew up, that, that was the image that I had in my mind of Jonah because I, somewhere along the line I had a Sunday school lesson and there was a picture of Jonah and he was sitting inside the belly of the whale at a desk like this with a candle and he's writing and he's, you know, he's very comfortable. And, and this is not at all what Jonah experienced, right? There was, there was absolutely... No comfort in Jonah's experience. Jonah is in a horrible, horrible situation in Jonah chapter 2. And Jonah chapter 2 is a a turning point in the book. Jonah chapter 2 is about repentance. It's about God coming after his rebellious prophet and, and turning the direction of Jonah's life. It's about the idea of repentance which in Hebrew means literally to turn. Jonah is going one direction and God is going to turn him around. To repent means to turn away from something or to turn towards something. It means you're going in the wrong direction. Either in what you're thinking or in what you're doing and what you're believing and God's going to turn you around. And so in Jonah chapter 2, God comes after Jonah and he turns him around. In case you missed last week, I want to give you a little visual. When we first encounter Jonah, apparently he is in his hometown of gath and he's told, go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to Nineveh, God says, and I want you to tell them that they're going to be destroyed in 30 days. Go and preach to the Ninevites. And so Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh, he goes down to this town of Joppa, which is where the yellow circle is, and rather than going 550 miles to the northeast to Nineveh, he goes the exact opposite direction to Tarshish, which is somewhere on the coast of southern Spain. Jonah needs to repent. (laughs) And God's going to come after him. And he's going to turn Jonah around, literally, and move him back into the will of God, not because God is angry, but because God loves Jonah and God wants to use Jonah in his purposes. And to move away from God is to destroy your life. So God gets a hold of Jonah and he turns him around. And what he does is he moves him to repentance, where he turns his life through three things. First, he turns Jonah through really bad circumstances. He puts Jonah in a really bad place. Then he gives Jonah a clear understanding of his own sin, his own responsibility in his circumstances. And then he gives Jonah this renewed and fresh perspective of who God is and why he's worthy of being followed and worshipped. So I want us to begin by reading together in chapter 1 and verse 17. It says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish Three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. 
For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. God puts Jonah in distressing circumstances. If you look in chapter 2, verse 2, he uses this word distress, which in Hebrew means a tight spot. Okay, it is a narrow or confined space. Spiritually, sure, but literally, Jonah is in distress. He is in a tight spot. And the vocabulary that he uses there is the vocabulary of death. Notice what he says at the end of verse 2. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. And then in the end of verse 6, he says, You have brought up my life from the pit. Uh, Sheol and the pit were roughly synonymous. It was the place of the dead. And in Hebrew theology, this is where everyone went. The righteous and the unrighteous. When they died, they left the earth and they went to Sheol. It was the netherworld. And their fear was not annihilation. They weren't afraid that they would no longer exist. What they feared was if they left the earth, they could no longer praise God. David said, the dead do not praise you. They don't have opportunity to worship, nor do they have opportunity to serve. And so Jonah is recognizing that his life is about to end and he's no longer going to get to serve the Lord. And so he uses this terminology of the end of life. There's water everywhere, literally, but also figuratively. Notice, Again, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, You had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The current engulfed me. All your breakers passed over me. Verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. And in Hebrew literature, water is a symbol of judgment and death. Remember Noah's flood. The water is judgment. The water is death. To everyone except those who get into the ark and are saved. And so in Jonah's case, the whale is a blessing. It may not have felt like it immediately when he's in the middle of it being partially digested, but it was, it was a gift. It was a blessing because he is literally at the point of death. This is what it feels like. Jonah would write later as he'd sit down and pull out his journal and write this poem. He would say, this is what it feels like to be right at the edge of death. When I was in high school, I almost drowned once. There's a new Braunfels. You've probably been there before, that chute thing. You know, you're supposed to go down it on your tube. Well, my buddy and I, we thought this would be really cool to go down it without our tubes on our feet. And we'll just surf down. It's really cool. So we went down it a bunch of times, five or six times. We're like, man, this is really cool. We could be surfers. And we're going down. And about the fifth or sixth time, I went down and the current grabbed me and it threw me into uh, the wall right below the lifeguard stand. But the lifeguard couldn't see me. Because I was right at the edge, right at his feet, and the water's just turning me underneath the water, just spinning me. And, I mean, I've never been so afraid in my entire life, and I thought, this is what it feels like to die. I couldn't break free. And then the current grabbed me, and it shot me down the river about 30 feet. I popped up, coughing, crawled to the bank, and then just sat there and shook for about 30 minutes. This is what it feels like. And this is what Jonah is saying. This is what it felt like. Weeds are wrapped around me. I cannot save myself. God had his attention. You know, God had my attention that day. 
I don't think there was any particular personal sin for which I was being punished other than, you know, breaking the rules, maybe not using my tube. But there I was and God had my attention. I realized life may not go on forever. My hand, my life is in the hand of God. Every breath that I take or do not take. God had Jonah's attention. I want you to keep your place in Jonah. Just flip back toward the old, toward Genesis, a couple pages to the book of Amos, chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, verse 6. God speaking to his people. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. That is, there was nothing to eat. Your teeth were clean because you had nothing to eat. And lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me. You didn't repent. You didn't turn around. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you. While there were still three months until the harvest. Then I would send rain on one city. And on another city, I would not send rain. One part would be rained on. While the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water. But would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not turned back to me. That's exactly what God does in our lives sometimes. As he surrounds us, he puts us in distressing situations. You're growing your crop, and it's about to bear fruit, but I don't bring enough rain for it to bear fruit or I send the caterpillar and moth and mildew and it's destroyed. There's water here. There's no water there, but I'm surrounding you. Why? Because I love you. So God does that in our lives. He hems us in and he puts us in these tight places where we have nowhere left to turn but to God. Sometimes it's because of our personal sin. I remember Jesus Uh, healed a man who was lame and then he found him again. He said, now, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Sometimes when we sin, the consequences come upon us in our lives and these distressing situations are a result of our own sin. Sometimes it's because of the sin of someone else that they've committed against us. Sometimes it's simply because we're in a broken, fallen world and God has said, I'm not going to fix everything yet and so you're going to experience the same thing that everyone else in a broken, fallen world experiences. And sometimes it's for none of those reasons. It's because God wants to take our lives and put us in these distressing situations so he can hold us up before all of the angelic host and say, have you considered my servant? Job or Tim or Tara. (laughs) Have you considered my servant? I want to honor and glorify myself through their lives. And sometimes we don't even know which of those reasons is it for. But when you're in the middle of those circumstances, you're crying out saying, God, why? Right? How do you pray? When you're in the, really getting squeezed by life, how do you pray? Is it a prayer of anger and bitterness? God, I don't deserve this. God, why? God, you owe me different. God, or is it sometimes just a prayer of God, just get me out, <laughs> quick. I remember when I was going through surgery after surgery after surgery about four years ago, that was the only thing I could pray. It was just, God, just stop. make it stop, please. Just get me out. You know, Jonah prays, and we really shouldn't be surprised that he prays, right? Everybody prays. When they get squeezed, even atheists pray. 
Suddenly, they pray, God, if, if you exist, and oh God, I hope you do. Even though I denied you my whole life, please God, I hope you exist and do something, right? Everybody prays when they get squeezed. So we're not surprised that Jonah prays. What's interesting is what he prays and how he prays. That's what's interesting. Jonah prays in the form of a psalm. He borrows, he borrows literature or, or words from the psalms. He's not shaking his fist at God. Instead, as he's being squeezed, all of the, the treasure of the word of God that's been hidden in his heart begins to come out. His hope and his confidence in God, his theology begins to return as he's squeezed. He's borrowing words from Psalms. He's borrowing uh, the form of the Psalms. It's poetry because it, poetry can express passion and intensity in such a brief form. This is the only poetry in the book of Jonah. The rest is all narrative, but he's getting squeezed and he later will sit down and he'll put it in a, in a poem because it's so intense. And he's got to find this language and vocabulary that's appropriate. So he puts it into a song. You know, one that can be easily memorized and recited or probably even something that he could sing later on in his life. And in Hebrew poetry, there are really two primary forms of poems. There's praise songs and lament psalms or songs. Okay, there are other subcategories of psalms, but those are the primary two. Lament psalms, psalms, obviously, it's something really, really sad and you're in grief and you're crying out to the Lord. And then praise songs, you're, you're thanking God and you're lifting up your praise to, to his greatness and his name. Now, which form do you think this is in Jonah 2? Praise or lament? It's actually praise. Okay? It's, a, it's not a lament psalm, it's, it's a praise psalm. Psalm. Because in the midst of his distressing circumstances, Jonah has been restored to wisdom. He's actually realizing this big fish is a gift. It's not pleasant. There is absolutely nothing pleasant about these circumstances, but it is God's deliverance. Because I was destroying myself by moving away from his will and away from his presence, away from his temple, away from worship, away from service. And so God has rescued me through this. Hebrews chapter 12. I remember memorizing this when I was in college and going through a trial. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The word for discipline is the word uh, for which we get the training of children, pedagogy. Okay. We're running away from God and we're behaving like children. <laughs> and so God steps into our lives and he squeezes, he disciplines, he trains. And it's not fun. Let's not fool ourselves. All discipline for the moment seems absolutely not joyful but sorrowful. Jonah was not having a pleasant experience. He wasn't sitting at a table with a lamp getting to write in his journal. He didn't compose this poem while in the fish, right? It was later on reflection. It's absolutely unpleasant circumstances, but he recognizes the goodness of God even in his trial. It's not joyful in the moment, yet to those who have been trained by it, who receive that pedagogy afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It yields something lasting and valuable and eternal. And so God chases after Jonah and he squeezes Jonah. And sometimes when God squeezes us, whether we brought the trial upon ourselves or it's for some other reason, sometimes we grow angry and bitter and we learn absolutely nothing from it. 
And sometimes we grow in righteousness, we return, and fellowship is restored with God. Opportunity to serve is restored with God. This whole story is really revealing to us what is God like and how does he interact with man? And what you'll notice throughout this story is everyone who is running from God is given opportunity to repent. The sailors get to repent. The Ninevites get to repent. Jonah gets to repent. The irony is Jonah's just the slowest. Okay? He knows the most, but he's the slowest. So God chases him down. He squeezes Jonah to move him to repentance. Second, God moves Jonah to repentance through a clear realization of his own sin. Turn back with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 2 and verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. You notice there in verse 8, he says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Why does he bring up idols? You know, he's been talking about his trial, his distressing circumstances. He's describing it in great detail. And then all of a sudden he says, those who regard vain idols. What's, what's the point of discussing idolatry? When we think of idols, we usually think of, uh, you know, little statues. I've shown you those little things. Or the Buddha that you see when you're walking into the Chinese restaurant. And it's got apples sitting out there and a little incense. And we think of that. Or some big statue that we've seen. We think idols. But essentially an idol is anything that we believe will give us the best life other than God. And so I think what's happening here is Jonah is acknowledging his own idolatry. As he is affirming his renewed faith in God, he is acknowledging the fact that he has become no better than an idolater because in running from God, he said, life will be better outside of your will. And that's idolatry. It's also foolishness. Okay? It's, it's just, it's foolishness. Bible talks a lot about idolatry, especially the Old Testament. I want you to keep your place here again in Jonah. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44 in verse 9. Isaiah gives a description of idols and idolatry. Beginning verse 9, he says, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all of his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. That's sarcasm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. 
He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a God and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half, he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. But the rest of it, he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Three characteristics of idols. First is they are by nature finite. Because they are created by finite beings. A man with limited strength, whose strength grows weary and he faints if he doesn't drink enough and eat enough, makes this God. And he makes it in his own image, and his image is finite. And so his God will be finite. His God will have limited power. He will turn to this God and say, deliver me. But that God is no stronger than he is because he made that God. So gods by their nature are finite. They're limited They have limited capacity to deliver, no greater than their own makers. I found a great illustration of this several years ago I stumbled upon. It's a quote by a man named Dave Navarro. He was the lead guitarist for Red Hot Chili Peppers, known for his profound insights into meaning of life and so forth. He said this, I was going through a rough time with my relationship, and I began to cry. I looked in the mirror and caught a glimpse of myself whimpering like a baby, wearing a shirt that said, I am God. That put a lot of things in perspective. (laughs) Idols are limited. They're finite. Second, idols are deceitful. Turn back to book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 8. Jonah says this in his poem. He says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Uh, The word for idol there is literally a lie or a falseness. An idol is, by very definition, it's a lie. It's promising something that it can't deliver. It's a lie. It's a deceit. All of our idols boast of great things that they will bring us fulfillment. Jonah believes at a moment in time that if he can just get away from the will of God, he can be happy. It's a lie. So Jonah says, those who regard Empty lies. Empty lies. Third characteristic of of idols is that they are uh, vain, empty, powerless. That word for vain is uh, a breath or a vapor. So it's a breath or a vapor, a vain, an empty thing, uh, figuratively something that cannot by its nature satisfy. So empty lies. Those who regard empty lies forsake their faithfulness. So what are your idols? We all have them from time to time. Maybe not little figures, but little things that we think, if I could just control my circumstances and move them this direction, apart from what God has apparently willed for my life, that that would be better. My plan is better. A man once wrote, though we do not face a pantheon of false gods like the Israelites did, We face pressures from a pantheon of false values, materialism, love of leisure, sensuality, worship of self, security, and many others. Idolatry may be something that most of us can't relate to unless we include life goals that revolve around something other than God himself. What is the object of our affections, our efforts, and our attention? Where does the majority of our time go? On what do we spend the greatest amount of our resources 
These are the things that are idols. And Jonah wisely realizes at this point in time, it's foolishness. Second, he realizes that his sin is at its core unfaithfulness. Notice again, verse eight, he says, those who regard empty lies or vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Very common Hebrew word here for faithfulness, hesed, it means loyal love. Remember when Moses wanted to know God's nature, his attributes, his personality. God, what do you like? God said, this is who I am. I am who I am. I'm always existent and I am loyal in my love. And throughout scripture, what you see is God views his relationship with men and women as the the relationship of a marriage, even more important and sacred than a marriage. And when we are unfaithful in our relationship with the Lord throughout the Old Testament, it is viewed as spiritual adultery. And Jonah says, by running away from God, what I've done is I've forsaken my loyal love to the one who has been faithful to me. And that is the essence and the nature of my sin. It's, it's disloyalty. It's unfaithfulness. And so God moves him to a point of, of acknowledging his responsibility. In this section, you see clearly God is in control, right? But Jonah is also responsible. And he has to be brought to this awareness and acceptance of responsibility before he will turn and repent. Third, God moves Jonah to repentance through a renewed vision of God's character. Who is God? What is he like? Look with me in chapter 2 and verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. uh, Because I had forgotten the Lord. And when we're in sin, we don't think about the Lord. It's the last thing that we want to do. We don't pick up the word. We move away from fellowship. And now as Jonah is getting squeezed by his circumstances, all his theology starts rushing back, right? I remembered Yahweh. I remembered the Lord. And what did Jonah remember about the Lord? Well, I'm going to give you a few things I think he remembered. First, he remembered that God is everywhere. In the middle of the ocean, God found me. I couldn't actually hide from him. Even though I had gone into a ship, I'd sailed away from God or at least away from his temple in Jerusalem. I sailed away. I'd gone down into the bottom of the ship. I'd fallen asleep. God found me. Remembered Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere. You hem me in behind and before. When I wake up in the morning, when I go to sleep at night, east, west, north, south, up, down, there you are, God, hemming me in. I can't escape. And so he prays, even from the belly of this fish, he prays because he knows God is everywhere and God can hear him. He says, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And I don't think he's talking about Jerusalem there. He's talking about the very presence of God in heaven. My prayer came to you because you are everywhere. I think he remembered that God is everywhere. I think he remembered that God is unchanging. My prayer came into your holy temple. God, you have not moved. God hadn't changed. God's will for Jonah's life hadn't changed. Nothing about God had changed. I remember several years ago, I had a friend who was, who was running away from God. And I sat down and I, I met with him. We talked and he said, you know, all my Christian friends have just abandoned me. And I said, absolutely not. I, I have not abandoned you. I have not moved. Our friends, our mutual friends, we have not moved. We have not changed. Here we are. But we're not moving with you. You're moving away from us. 
But we haven't changed. Our attitude towards you hasn't changed. Our love for you hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. Here we are. Come back. And that's what Jonah realizes. God has not changed. God's will hasn't changed. God's personality hasn't changed. But Jonah has moved away. And since God's will hasn't changed, he's still going to come after that prophet. He's going to pull him back in. And he's going to have to discipline Jonah because he's absolutely holy and because he's loving. He doesn't want Jonah to miss out. So he chases Jonah down and he brings Jonah back. Third thing that he remembers is that God is good. Look at me, chapter 2, verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And apparently, these are the thoughts that came to him even while he was in the belly of the fish. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I acknowledge that even this horrible circumstance is actually a gift from you. God, you are using that in my life. You are good. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. I will renew my vows. As in wedding vows, vows of faithfulness. I will renew those vows to you. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And what I think is interesting about this story is Jonah prays and then the fish puts him back on land, which tells me that God went after him. He grabbed him, swallowed him up in the fish, and the fish was already heading back into the will of God. Okay? Ready, waiting, Jonah repents. Boom, God answers. Okay, just like that. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 2, Second section of that verse, it says, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, you heard my voice. And in Hebrew, it says literally, I cried, you heard. I cried, you heard. The verbs are put right next to each other. I cried, you heard. And that is to emphasize the immediacy of God's response. I cried, you heard. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He goes off and he has a great time for a while. But then he gets in distressing circumstances. He gets really squeezed. He has nowhere left to turn. He has no money. He has no friends. He's got nothing. So finally, God's got his attention. And he turns. The father has not moved. Here he is standing. And every day he's standing and he's waiting and he's looking. He's waiting for that turn. And as soon as he sees that turn, the father goes and he runs out to meet him and he embraces the son. That's the father. He's always going after the son. Now, where is the father in relationship to the older son? We often blow off that older son. Ah, he's bad. You know, I would never be him. And I wouldn't be the prodigal either. I'm, who am I? I don't know. Maybe I'm, I want to be like the father. No. Well, we're probably not. So there's the older son. And he doesn't like anything that's going on. So he's outside the party. And where does the father go? Father goes out to him too. We often overlook that fact. The father goes after the prodigal. The father goes after the judgmental, self-righteous son too. It says, come on in. Because that's the nature of the father. And that's really what the story of the prodigal son that Jesus made up is about. It's this, this same this story of Jonah. That's a, a historical story. These are given to us to tell us this is who God is. This is what God is like. He loves his children so much he goes after them. He will not let them escape his will because that's destruction. He goes and goes and goes. That's initiative. That's grace. Maybe you've been running from God your whole life and you've never turned and said, God, I acknowledge that you are good and that you're gracious and that you're kind and you've proven it in Christ who paid for my sins. Thank you. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning is just turn back to God and say, I believe. I believe that Jesus 
There's a way that I can be rescued. Jesus proves that you love me. Thank you, God. The moment that you do that, you're reconciled. You're put into right relationship with God. And that is a relationship to which he will always be loyal and faithful. You cannot ever lose that relationship. And he loves you absolutely so much that no matter what happens in your life, he's going to come after you constantly, always. Jonah, I think, begins to remember that again. Fourth thing that Jonah remembers is that God is powerful. Verse 10. It says, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the land. Unceremonious, unglamorous re-entry into the will of God. But, you know, that's the literal translation. It disengorged, just, bah. there is Jonah. He's a mess, right? But he's back on track. What you notice in the story is it says, God commanded the storm. God commanded the fish to swallow Jonah. God commanded the fish to put Jonah back into his will. God's in charge. Okay. God acts. God, Jonah is also responsible. Okay. And no reconciliation of the two. It's just God's in control and sovereign over all things and all nature, nations. And Jonah is responsible for his choices. And God is acting always consistently with his personality and his will. And he loves Jonah. And so he doesn't want Jonah to run away and escape. He's he's not willing. So he puts in a little extra effort and goes after him and pulls him back. And perhaps in your own life, you've been moving away or just believing in little subtle ways that you can figure out life better than God can. And God is saying, come back. And I consistently pray, God, help me turn when I do that. Help me turn without having to get swallowed. (laughs) Make me uh, a person with a soft heart so I don't have to get completely crushed before I turn and learn and believe that you are good and that you know what's best. As we close, I'd like for us to take a few moments silently before the Lord. Ask the Lord to speak. Are we running in any area? Do we need to turn and acknowledge again? Lord, you are loyal and you are good and you are trustworthy we're willing to follow. Let's just take a few moments silently before the Lord and then let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge we are always in need of a, a fresh word from your spirit. There is always room for repentance in our lives. We are constantly being tempted to listen to the deceit of a wide variety of idols in our culture that are really empty, they're vain, they promise great things but deliver nothing. I pray, Father, that we would have soft hearts and we would listen even today to the voice of your Spirit. In any area where we're moving away from you, we would turn, we would uh, repent, we would move back into the center of your will. Father, I thank you for this, this wonderful short story of Jonah and how revealing it is of your character, your goodness and your power and your, your love for all people and your willingness to always offer us opportunity to turn and to repent and to be restored to fellowship with you. Father, I thank you that you made that possible for us in Jesus Christ. We can always turn and run boldly into your presence because of Jesus. Thank you for giving us time just to stop and think and worship. I pray that throughout this week, your, your character, your attributes would be fresh in our minds and we would remember. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.